Future Proof Extra from News Talk. Now, when it comes to fighting an international pandemic, figuring out how to stop the disease is only half the battle. The public need to be informed, understand, and be motivated to act if we're ever going to get through the other side of this never-ending hellscape. It's one of the reasons that Dr. John Tregoning, reader in respiratory infections at Imperial College London, wrote his book. It's called Infectious Pathogens and How We Fight Them. He joins me now. Um, John, welcome to the program. I, I'm, I'm wondering at this stage, is there anything that the public doesn't know about pathogens or um, what made you write this book? Hi, Jonathan, and thank you for having me on the show. Um, I think there's so much we don't know. And I think I, I say that as somebody who works in the field. They, I, you know, I know a little bit about lung respiratory viral infections, but there's bacterial infections, there's fungal infections, there's parasites, there's a huge amount that nobody knows. And there's a, a lot that the specialists don't know beyond the space of their field. So I think there's lots of things out there. I think a lot of the thinking about the book was actually understanding the biology that goes into these diseases. So how does a virus interact with your cells? How does it make copies of itself? What's the cellular machinery that, that makes more copies? So there's a lot of kind of underpinning biology that I, I don't think people necessarily carry around in their heads. No, I think you're quite right. I think we use analogies uh, a lot of the time to make things easier for the public to understand. But um, that's not exactly what you see when you, when you look at um, these infections under a microscope. So perhaps you might um, help us with, with that then. Maybe you might talk about um, SARS-CoV-2, um, COVID, and, and explain exactly what is happening when this uh, virus infects cells. I'm sure people think, oh, God, are we actually going to talk about this now? But, um, but I, I think you, people will find, as you say, that... Um, we sort of have an idea, but not, we don't have a, a precise idea of what's going on. So what is happening? Well, I think the first thing that uh, really struck me recently, I, there was an image of what a cell actually looks like. So most of us might have a drawing on our head, like a, a bit like a fried egg, a big circle, and then another circle that's the nucleus, and then a few little bits and pieces that you might have had, like ribosomes and things. Yeah. But the cell itself is chock full of proteins and uh, fats and lipids and little water bodies and it's it's like a completely cramped like it's a miniature city in there and the fact that anything happens at all is in, it's unbelievable the fact that you get messages moving from one part to the other through this kind of mess of proteins is is really staggering so there's a lot going on in the cell to start with but if we come back to like what happens during a viral infection so SARS-CoV-2 the virus has a protein that sticks out the surface of the cell so if you think of a, a virus as a kind of little football, it has lots of little spikes that stick out of the football. Yeah, I think people are familiar with that image. And then the spike protein on there is it binds the human cell receptor. So it binds something called the ACE2 receptor. So the, the virus can attach onto the, the cell and then the, ACE, the virus spike protein basically acts like a kind of inverted umbrella. It changes shape and it pulls the virus and the cell close together. And that allows the virus to then inject its genetic information into the cell. So the, the virus has got to the cell and it's injected its genetic information into the cell. So um, let me just stop you there. When we say binds to a receptor, what exactly does that mean? Because I've heard that term over and over. So the, the sort of common phrase is like a lock and key. So the two things fit together. But the way probably easier to think about it is like if you imagine the children's toy where you put a little toy cow into a shape of a cow and it goes moo. That's how receptor binding works. It, it, the shape fits together and then there's a chemical interaction. So it's um, it's a kind of, to go very, very scientific, it's kind of thermodynamic interaction. Basically, the two things 
there, there's a, a, an energy exchange and the two things kind of fit together very closely. So that's what the receptor binding is. So there's two proteins that are kind of fit together really closely. Now, why, why, why do they do anything when they fit together closely? Because what, that then triggers the shape change in the spike protein. So by binding the human cell surface, the, the spike protein on the virus, uh, there's an energetic change and it moves from one combination to, to another. So if you think of a spring umbrella, you know that bit where you press the button and it pops up? Yeah. The, the binding is the triggering of that pressing the button and the spike protein changes shape and that's what pulls the, this, the virus very close to the cell. And so then the, this virus would inject its, uh, its contents into the cell. And this is DNA? So in the case of SARS-CoV-2, it's actually RNA. So DNA is the message that we use as human cells to store our genetic information. Yes, but there's of a secondary molecule called RNA, which shuttles the information from the DNA to the protein factories called the ribosomes. And some viruses use RNA as the way to transmit their genetic information. Right. Um, so uh, when it, it is injected into this, as you say, this sort of metropolis of city with lots of different things, what happens then? So then the viral RNA uh, starts, well, will start accumulating host proteins. So it'll have some proteins that it uses to make copies of itself, but it'll also need to use some of the host machinery. So viruses are what we describe as obligate obligate parasites so they have to hijack another cell's machinery to make copies of themselves so they will recruit uh, bits of protein to the uh, genetic material and start to make copies of the genetic material to make future viruses but they'll also start to make viral proteins as well so they'll make copies of their own proteins and copies of their genetic material and and of course that buildup of viral information then gets passed on from cell to cell, and we have an increased so-called viral load. Exactly. So probably the the actual infectious dose that you need is is in in very small. So you probably only need to get infected with a hundred viruses to cause an infection. If it's wow, that, it's a very small number, but it only happens. It kind of happens rarely. So it has to be. You know, everything has to be in the virus's favor that day. You know, it doesn't hit a bit of mucus or a bit of snot in your nose and get, get that sort of, or hits the wrong kind of cell. It, there's a kind of, there is a, a stochastic, a chance element to it, but it doesn't, once it's in, it doesn't take very many to start that kind of cascade of viral infection. Hmm. And when it comes to in, infectious diseases, is, is it always that um, these viruses, if they take hold and um, they take hold within the lungs, is it always that they end up causing tissue damage by by, by this process of, of infecting cells and continue to replicate? So there'll be, a, that's what, that's what there's, it's not, there's no always to infection. That's why there's this kind of big spread of symptoms. So you get some people who will get the virus and never get sick at all. You'll get other people who get severely ill. And a lot of that is actually how far down the lungs the virus spreads. So if you get it into your nose, and you can contain it in your nose, it doesn't make you very sick because ultimately you can breathe through your mouth. But it's when it gets start getting down lower into your lungs and then it does start causing uh, more damage in the lungs. And, it, and it's a combination of the virus causing damage and then the immune system trying to fight the virus off also right. causes damage. So there's a balance. And you may get some people who are sick because there's too much virus damage and you'll get other people who are sick because there's too much immune damage. And 
at the end stage of them lying in a hospital bed, it looks kind of the same because their lungs are not functioning as well. But actually, the route to that point is going to be different for every different person. You study something called the respiratory syncytial virus. Um, can you tell me what it is and uh, why you're interested in it? So RSV is a disease that predominantly infects children. So um, all children in a normal year, I say, I would have always said all <laughs> children under under the age of one year will have got an RSV infection sometime during the year. Of those, 5% get relatively seriously infected and then 1% require hospitalisation. So it's a very big burden on paediatric intensive care units. It causes something called bronchiolitis. So it's a severe infection of the lungs and it makes it very difficult for the children to breathe. And actually the thing they need to help them is support with air. So they'll either have CPAP, which is little plugs up the nose, or actually need intubation if they get particularly sick. So it's a nasty disease in children. It didn't really happen last year. So the the non-pharmaceutical interventions, so lockdowns, stopped the spread of RSV last year. But I think we're going to see a very different RSV season this year. And it's, it's, it's why does it infect children so badly and not adults? What's the differences about it? And it's a it's a virus that is yet to have a vaccine that works against it. Could you target RSV using RNA vaccines in, in the same way as we have with um, COVID? I, I think so. I, I hope so. A lot of where we got to with the COVID vaccines and why we got there so quickly was because understanding about how the virus RSV gets into cells was then used to inform understanding about how spike protein on the SARS-CoV gets into cells. Right. So, so a lot of the kind of modelling and the understanding about what to put into the antigen, into the vaccine, came from RSV research. And a number of the same companies, so Pfizer, BioNTech, Moderna, are all looking at um, RSV RNA vaccines at the moment. So it's interesting that RSV sort of disappeared while everyone was trying to protect themselves from COVID. That sort of makes sense. But the other thing that we tend to try and do to keep ourselves healthy is, is wash our hands and, and, and keep ourselves clean. And of course, that has been seized upon by companies to, to sell products um, to, to make our environments hyper clean. Um, can you talk to us about whether or not that's a good idea? If we want to reduce the number of infections that we get, is it a good idea to bleach everything in sight? So, so there's a there's a balance that's needed between cleanliness stopping you from getting sick. So washing your hands after you go to the toilet is obviously a sensible idea and it'll stop the spread of germs from feces and poo going into food or whatever else you're doing. So, that, so that's clearly an important thing to do. The idea of bleaching every surface, I think, it, to, is potentially problematic. And there is a, there's a hypothesis called the hygiene hypothesis which is about why is there, or the question was, why are we seeing increasing rates of asthma and allergy in developed countries? Yeah. And what the, there was a epidemiological study. So it wasn't, it, it was looking at association. So it could causation, not necessarily causation, but there was a correlation between increases in um, the cleanliness of, of spaces and also the kind of level of um, asthma. So there, there probably is an association and it may be in how you're exposed to certain bacteria when you're younger. And it may kind of just train your immune system so you don't get asthma and allergy later in life. There's an interesting illustration of this um, in the book, and it's to do with the Hutterite and the Amish. Can you tell us about that? Yes. Yeah, so the Hutterites in the Amish communities are two farming communities based in the USA. 
and they both um, move into America from Germany in, with the early settlers, so sort of 18th century. They're relatively isolated communities, so they're quite, they're, they're sort of, which is a polite way of saying they're inbred. There's, there's sort of a lot of kind of um, interfamily <laughs> marriages going on there. So their genetics are quite similar. So you've basically got two populations that are genetically quite similar, but the Amish have restricted the use of their kind of technology. So they don't use beyond 19th century technology. They don't use electricity and, and there's a number of things. So they've kind of, they're set at a certain time point, whereas the Hutterites use modern technology. So there you've got a kind of controlled experiment where you're looking at a similar kind of genetic background. And you're, the question is, which one of these two populations gets more asthma? And based on this idea of the hygiene hypothesis, you might argue that maybe the Amish would have fewer cases of asthma because they're being more exposed to bacteria and to farm animals than the Hutterites. And this does play out that the Amish tend to have lower rates of asthma. So there is something about interacting with farm animals and living closely with uh, livestock that protects you against asthma and allergy later in life. What about other viruses then? Um, it, it took us 18 months to, to fight off um a COVID and, and get a, a very usable, very effective vaccine. And yet we've been researching something like HIV for, for such a huge amount of time. And yet we've gotten nowhere in terms of a vaccine. Why is that? Why is, is HIV a much more difficult disease to, to tackle uh, compared to something like um, this uh, COVID, uh, SARS-CoV-2? So in terms of vaccination, the difference between the two infections is, is the amount of diversity within the viruses. So SARS-CoV-2, there are five main variants. There's the original outbreak variant and going alpha, beta, gamma and delta. Delta seems to be the one that's kind of predominating. But there's only five kind of variants of that virus. And they're all quite similar. So they have different characteristics in terms of how they spread, but the the bit that your immune system sees in each of these viruses is pretty similar. And it's close enough that the vaccine that was made against the original virus still sees the Delta virus. HIV is a, basically a swarm of different viruses. The, the proteins that stick on the outside of HIV are completely different. And somebody who's infected with it will be making thousand different viruses and oh, so wow. your, your vaccine is trying to hit all of these at once and not only that it, the hiv wraps itself up in sugar and your body's not very good at seeing sugar so it's it's got multiple tricks up its sleeve to hide from your body and i think that it's the diversity times these other challenges that makes hiv so difficult to make a vaccine against right and um is it very difficult then to find a target somewhere in the mechanism of HIV because is that how you go about trying to tackle these viruses, trying to find a single point of failure um, when you're trying to find a vaccine or, or some sort of a cure? So, so there are different bits. Definitely when you're making drugs to treat HIV, then yes, you can look for these kind of differences. And, and the drugs against HIV, so whereas the vaccines have failed by and large, the drugs have been incredibly successful. If we, mm. you know, you, you go back 30 years, there was no treatment for HIV. It was it was fatal. You go to, to today where people can get treatment and um, effective antiretroviral drugs and live life with a chronic condition. So the, the drug side of things does look for that kind of single point of weakness. With the vaccine, I, we haven't worked out what that is 
the presumption is that maybe it's the protein sticking out on the outside, the, the, the one it uses to get into cells, but that is the one that's super variable and therefore that's what creates the challenges. Well, uh, thanks so much, John. I, I, I did actually learn lots that I, um, that I didn't know. So it just goes to show we have still so much to learn when it comes to pathogens. The book uh, is called Infectious Pathogens and How We Fight Them. Dr. John Jagoning from Imperial College London. Thanks very much for your time. Thank you. Thank you.